invite you to take a Bible and turn again to Colossians chapter 3. It's page 984 in the Pew Bibles. As you're turning there, I would like to mention the next Sunday, the 27th, uh, when we just have the one service, I plan to bring a biographical message on the life of John C. Patton, who was uh, the missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. And um, I read that autobiography of his earlier this year. Now I'm almost finished or uh, about halfway through with uh, his brother's kind of sequel to the autobiography. And so I wanted to uh, bring that uh, because it had such a big impact on me. Allison Ashley, welcome back. I don't mean to embarrass you. Allison served on our youth ministry staff and young adult staff for years and years, and I was surprised to see you walk in a minute ago. So uh, welcome. Glad you're here. Um, You think, uh, wait, this is a Christmas sermon. Um, you'll see. <laughs> Look at Colossians 3, we're at verses 12 and following. We're going to focus on, on verses uh, 16 and following, but I'll begin reading in verse 12. Hear God's word. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you, you also must forgive. And above all, all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray with the psalmist now that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. In Jesus' name, amen. The choir disappeared. I didn't, see, I didn't know. All right. They were at the first service. I didn't know if anybody was behind me. I kind of... You know, I, I don't know. I don't know which what direction I'm preaching in sometimes, so I, I wanted to see if anybody was, was there or not. Um, Ira Sankey, I'm going to mention two names in the sermon day that, that most of us have never heard of. Some of you may have heard of this first one, and that was Mr. Ira Sankey, I-R-A. Uh, he was, in the 1800s, a very, very well-known nationally and internationally gospel singer associated with the evangelistic meetings of D.L. Moody, the, you might say the 18th century version of, of Billy Graham, 19th century version. And Ira Sankey in the year 1876 on a Christmas Eve was on a steamboat going up the Delaware River. And on the deck there were a number of passengers and they were looking out on a calm starlit uh, night, and someone said, well, Mr. Ira Sankey is on board. And there was immediate excitement, and they said, let's get him to sing a song. Let's ask Mr. Sankey to sing. And so he agreed to do so. He stood on the deck, leaning against one of the great funnels of the boat, and he wanted, because it was Christmas Eve, to sing a Christmas song, but he decided to sing the words of the hymn, Savior, Like a Shepherd, Lead Us which goes on, much we need thy tender care. In thy pleasant pastures feed us, for our use thy foals prepare. And everyone on deck 
uh, listen very intently, not only to his wonderful singing voice, but also to the words of the hymn. When he finished singing the song, a man stepped forward and said to him, Did you ever serve in the Union Army? And Bauer Sankey said, Yes, uh, in the spring of 1860. And he said, Can you remember if you were doing picket duty on a bright moonlit night in 1862? And Ira Sankey, with a surprised look on his face, said, Yes, I do. And the man said, well, I was serving that night too, but I was serving in the Confederate Army. And he said, when I saw you standing at your post that night, I was hidden in the shadows, and you in the bright moonlight were a perfect target. And I said to myself, this man will not leave here tonight alive. And so I raised my musket, and I had you in the sights, and at that instant you began to sing. And you began to sing the very song that you were singing just now, and that's how I recognized who you were. And you said, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. And I took my finger off the trigger, and I said, I'll let him finish his song, and then I'll kill him. And then you sang the words, We are thine to do. Do thou befriend us. Be the guardian of our way." And as you were singing and I was listening that night, I thought back to my childhood and my mother and how she loved God and how she used to sing that song to me many times. And so at the end of the song, when you finished, I could not raise my musket again. It was impossible for me to take aim, though you stood there in the bright moonlight, a perfect target. And then I thought of the Lord and I thought to myself, The God who is able to save that man from certain death must surely be great and mighty. Arasanke was deeply moved. He threw his arms around the man who had been his enemy and who could have easily ended his life that night years before. But as it was that Christmas Eve night, this former soldier found the Savior. What we have here in Colossians 3, if you've been with us the past several weeks, is practical application in our lives of what it means to be in Christ. In the opening part of the chapter, we've looked at how, as believers, our position is we are in Christ, we are raised with him, we are seated with him. When Christ returns in glory, it says in the opening verses, we will be with him. Then in verses 5 and following, he, the Apostle Paul tells us to put off certain things as God's chosen ones, Now, as new creatures in Christ, we're to put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from our mouth. We're to put away sexual immorality. And and then we are told also in verses 12 and following what we're to put on. We're to put the old off like old clothes. We're to put the new wardrobe on, a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We're to bear with one another, forgiving each other, even as the Lord has forgiven us, so we should forgive others. And then we come to these verses in verse the one we saw last week about let us, or let, in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. If you were here last Sunday, I mentioned that the peace of Christ can refer to the fact that we first have peace with God through Christ. Then having experienced that peace with God, we can have inner peace. 
And then as a result of that, we're able to be at peace with one another. So when it says, let the peace of Christ rule or umpire in your hearts, essentially it's because I'm a believer in Christ. And if you're a believer in Christ, even though we may disagree, we may have great disagreement, we can be at peace with one another because the peace that rules our hearts can rule between us. And now we see it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Let the word of Christ rule in your hearts. It's the only time in the Bible the word is of Christ, that phrase is used. And I think it's because Paul is exalting Christ. He was, false teachers had come in. They were lowering the position of Christ. He's exalting the position of Christ. So we take this as not only the words Jesus spoke, uh, but also the, the word of God, the scriptures themselves. And again, when it says, let the word of Christ, the word has momentum. Don't stand in its way. Don't block it. Don't stop it. Let it dwell in you richly. What does that mean? When I was young, I believe in elementary school or so, uh, my parents gave me a large chemistry set for Christmas. And like any boy at that age, I guess, maybe girls too, the first thing I wanted to do is fire up the Bunsen burner, you know, and burn something. Uh, So I was back... uh, in my bedroom, our, our house was a one-story ranch-style house. My bedroom was at the far end, and my parent, the kitchen and the den were a, pr- a pretty good ways from there, several rooms between us. And so I was back there by myself, and I was looking in the manual that came with the, uh, the chemistry set. And back then, they didn't have anything about warnings, you know, and oh, shit, now it's probably 500 pages of warnings, but... They should have had one in light of what was getting ready to happen. So I'm reading, and it says how to make um, hydrogen sulfide. Now, this sounded interesting to me. Now, I may mean, have no interest or knowledge of chemistry at the time, but it looks simple. All you did, you mixed a certain amount of paraffin wax with sulfur in a test tube and hold it over the flame. And I did notice in it mentioned in the instructions that this is what was used to make stink bombs, but maybe that's what... So I began to heat this. And my father, who I don't know if I ever saw him run more than once, this may have been the second time my whole life that I saw my father run. He came running from the other end of the house and said, what are you doing back here? Well, I didn't realize, but the, the stench that came from this thing richly dwelt within <laughs> now the whole house. And for weeks, the carpet the curtains, the bedspread, it, I had to throw the test tube away, obviously, and, and it, uh, so when I read recently dwelt within us, that's a negative connotation, here it's a positive connotation, but it's the idea that it permeates everywhere. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Now, is that you, the Greek plural, y'all, or is it you individually? Well, really, it's both. As the word of God richly dwells within me or you as an individual believer, then corporately as a local church, it richly dwells among us so that everything we do, not only what we believe, but how we do things, ministry, function as a church, should be dictated by the word of God richly dwelling and permeating it all. And so one obvious way to do this, he moves on then, is through teaching and admonishing one another. As the word of God richly dwells within me, within you, then you can teach and admonish 
And you can do it with all wisdom, uh, rather than just our own opinions or emotional responses to things, but, but with the scriptures. Um, so how do we let the Word of God richly dwell within us? Well, practically speaking, you've got to have an intake. Uh, some of us are auditory learners. I, I learn much better listening than I do reading. Some, I would rather listen to the Bible than read the Bible as far as retention. One of you here recently, and I can't remember for sure who it was, told me that your exercise is you walk, and as you walk, you've got an iPod or something, and you're, you listen to the Bible. I thought, what a great idea. And it's just a daily routine. Uh, think if you've not done something like that, if you want, and I hope you do, the Word of God more richly to dwell within you, then you need an intake of it. You could resolve that in January 1, you're going to start listening to the Bible, either as you drive or as you walk or whatever. If you've got some device, you can listen. You can download it for free. You can probably choose the accent. You want the British reader or you want the, you know, the, the, the American or, uh, or whatever. American. Is that an accent? No. Uh, so you can do that. In fact, the Bible, if I were to stand and read the Bible at this rate that I'm speaking now, it takes about 84 hours. Uh, so you could go through the Bible if you were 30 minutes a day, easily twice next year, just, just listening to it. Or whether it's reading it or memorizing or meditating. I was reading uh, something on uh, Gospel Coalition's website yesterday, and it was, it was seven benefits of memorizing Scripture. And one of the benefits, it said, sometimes you have insights after the 500th time of repeating a verse. And I thought, that was an insight. So that's really true, uh, that, that over time, you, especially if you've retained it in your memory and in your heart, you, you can think about it and meditate on it, and you'll see things maybe as li your life circumstances change that you did not see before. Okay, so then he mentions singing. Now, this is very, very important, uh, what I'm going to say. This, the verse reads this way, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Then a comma, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, comma. Uh, then singing with psalms, hymns, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. There's a temptation to interpret it teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In fact, some translations put it that way. But we miss the point if we do that. The teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom is, is like stand alone, then singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Why do I say that? Well, singing is a way the Word of God dwells in us. It helps, it helps the Word of God dwell within us as we sing God's Word. You think in Scripture... After the Lord's Supper, after the first Lord's Supper, there in the upper room in Matthew chapter 26, when Christ has taken the Passover and he's instituted the Lord's Supper and he, he's given these words, the upper room discourse, and then late into the night, and he'll be arrested within hours. And Matthew 26 said, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Paul and Silas are in prison in Acts chapter 16. I'll give you the context of it later, but in prison it said about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. 
and the other prisoners were listening to them. So Christianity is a singing faith. Singing praises to God with Scripture-saturated words is a vital part of the Christian life. The great songs of the faith were, for the most part, written by believers who knew the Word of God. They had the Word of God richly dwelling within them, and they expressed those artistically in, in poetry that were then made into hymns later. So three types are mentioned here. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. I don't think there's need to go into great depth of what each of these meant. Psalms, most likely that word. Songs were the psalms of the Old Testament. For centuries, the churches of the English-speaking world sang only metrical versions of the psalms. That's our background, especially as Presbyterians. When this sanctuary was built in 1858, when it would seat 600 people. And when I would read that and I come in now, and I've counted seat by seat, I mean, 450 is max now. Well, that's because the pews went all the way up there. And there was no organ, and there was an, there's an alcove, still is, behind those pipes where the preacher would stand to preach. But the pews came all the way up because we, it was unaccompanied psalm singing. There was no choir, there were no instruments, and, and so forth. And, and, the, and the singing was the psalms, metrical psalms. Then there are hymns, which are songs of praise to God that are not necessarily taken from the psalms and then spiritual songs, which many believe to be expressions of biblical truth other than psalms and hymns. But the main point here is the content of the hymns of the church, uh, that it's to be scriptural, that it's to be the word of Christ dwelling richly in it. And a good test of such is whether the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs echo a heartfelt thankfulness, as it says in the last phrase there, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Are the words in the songs a celebration of God's mighty acts? Do they focus on the gospel of grace? Now, I think this is very difficult for those of us if we're to sing with thankfulness in our hearts because here's the temptation. It's to sing the words and our minds be elsewhere. And, and I found myself doing this earlier today. Noel, Noel. In 1876, Ira Sankey was on a boat on the Delaware River. I mean, I... So what we should do, though, is, is focus on this. Am I expressing from my heart, in my mind, and not thinking about other things around me or what I have to do or what I'm getting ready to say, but singing with thankfulness in my heart to God? Now, let me give you... I'm going to diverge a little bit and tell you a little bit about music and church history. And I, I talked to two of our college professors after um, that teach church music and uh, to make sure that what I'd said after the first service was correct, and they more or less signed off on it. Um, various forms of hymns and chants came about in the centuries leading up to the Reformation. So for a thousand years of Christian worship, uh, before the Reformation, the, the congregation, the lay people, had rarely sung. They had listened to chants and so forth in Latin, and then came Martin Luther. And Luther declared, next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. Now that view put him in contrast with other reformers who were like-minded about many things, but they were, had di different views about music. 
Now, Ulrich Zwingli, who was a leader of a new church in Zurich, Switzerland, was a trained musician. Yet it was under his influence that, and his followers that uh, organs were banned, some were destroyed. Uh, Zwingli later permitted some vocal music, but no instrumental music. And John Calvin, though he considered music a gift from God, saw it as a gift only in the worldly domain, and so its role in the church was very, very limited. And he did not appreciate or condone instrumental music in the church, uh, and they did not allow for harmonies. The singing of the psalms was all in unison, and that was all that was permitted in those services. But Luther didn't share that view. He wrote, I am not of the opinion that all arts are to be cast down and destroyed on account of the gospel. On the other hand, I would gladly see all arts, especially music, in the service of him who has given and created them. And so medieval hymns were not sung by the congregation, so Luther helped to return singing to the people. So when we think about the Reformation, it's not just justification by faith and so forth. It's the returning of music and the singing of congregational singing. Many of our hymns that, that we appreciate so much and use were written during what was called the Golden Age of Hymns, which was basically during the 1700s, 300 years ago. And at that time, there were virtually, or before these were written, there were virtually no English hymns as we know them. And then on the scene, God brings Isaac Watts, Charles Wesley, John Newton, and others who began writing hymns. Now, let me tell you how prolific this handful of hymn writers were. Uh, John and Charles Wesley published 56 collections of hymns in 53 years. 56 collections. Now, 18th century hymn books were usually only a collection of text. When this church, First Presbyterian Church, was founded in the 1820s, up to that time, and for a few more years, no American hymnal had put uh, tunes with a text. If you had a hymn book, it was words only. The first one to be published was in 1831 that put tunes with text. So the usual method of singing was called lining out, where the song leader would give out the line and then the congregation would follow them and sing it. Now there were two reasons for that. Hymn books were expensive and many people could not read. So they had to hear the words before they could sing them. The singing of hymns was not officially approved in the Church of England, the Anglican Church, until 1820. So the singing of hymns in English in churches is relatively recent church history. Does that make sense? Only a tenth of the time since the New Testament. The last tenth of, of history with that. Uh, John Wesley's first two published books first two published books of tunes included only a melody line because even he had serious doubts about singing in parts, you know, using harmony. Uh, throughout Charles Wesley's life, here he and his brother were the found and some others were the founders of what became called Methodism. His hymns, the ones he wrote, were not sung in their worship services. They were only sung in what was called informal gatherings during the week. Many early hymns contained more than a dozen stanzas. I noticed on the first Noel, I think we sang four stanzas today. Can you imagine singing 12? Charles Wesley's hymn, Soldiers of Christ Arise, 
We, we sing that from time to time. It had a, originally had 18 stanzas. His uh, brother John included only 12 of those in his 1780 hymn book. And he divided those into three separate hymns. So often the hymn writer just wrote the words. It was poetry. And then there were known tunes that would be used for that, and they could change the tunes, use a different tune with the same. But so the hymn writer often was not the music, it was just the words. They were poets. Listen to this numbers of, of how many were produced from these hymn writers. Augustus Toplady wrote six hymns. William Cooper wrote 68 hymns. John Newton wrote 280 hymns. Philip Doddridge wrote about 400 hymns. And my favorite hymn writer, Isaac Watts, wrote 697. 697, but don't stop. Charles Wesley wrote over 8,900 hymns. <laughs> Isaac Watts, considered by many to be the revitalizer of the English hymn, began writing by accident. He complained to his father that all they had to sing at church were the poor renderings in verse of the Psalms. So his father said, well, why don't you create something better? And the following Sunday, he presented the hymn, Behold the Glories of the Lamb. I want to speak to you young people that are here. God's given you gifts in music, and I don't mean exceptional gifts. Uh, and I'm not talking about uh, becoming a celebrity or a star. I'm talking about developing your gifts of music, whether as an instrumentalist, take composition classes in school or in college, the Psalms, speaking of music, says, Play skillfully with a shout of joy. There's nothing wrong with practice and giving yourself to being the best musician you can. The challenge with this whole thing is combining musical integrity with sound biblical theology. That's where it's really, really difficult. Musical integrity with sound biblical theology. Well, the last phrase I want to point out is the one that occurs three times in this paragraph. In verses 15, 16, and 17, it says, Be thankful to Christ. You may say, Well, I, Chip, you don't know all I've been through. I don't have a lot to be thankful for right now. Well, stop and think about it. You, you really do. All of us do. It doesn't matter what we've been through or what we're going through. Um, probably, if, if you own a Bible commentary in your house, it's probably Matthew Henry's Bible commentary. And something happened to Matthew Henry once that I, I found um, pretty amazing. He was robbed. He was robbed on the street, and he wrote in his journal afterwards, let me be thankful, speaking of being robbed, let me be thankful. First, because I was never robbed before. Second, because although he took my billfold, he did not take my life. Third, Although he took everything I had, it was not much. Fourth, I should be thankful because it was I who was robbed rather than I who did the robbing. One of the best ways to express gratitude to the Lord is in singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Whether you're alone, whether you're corporately, in Acts chapter 16, I read to you the end of that passage earlier. Now I'm going to give you the context. Paul and Silas had been evangelizing. 
and the crowd turns on them. And here's, what act, here's how Luke records it in Acts 16. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten after they had been severely flogged. That's whipped, folks. This was, this was not one shot to the face. This was they were beaten up very, very badly. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. They were in a bad situation. They were in pain. Then it says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Now that's gratitude, and that probably helped them to lift their spirits. Let's sing to God. I wish I knew what they were saying. <laughs> Are you one who continually gives thanks to God? Would others say about you that you are a thankful person? I don't mean that you're always saying thank you to others, but that you have a thankful attitude toward your lot in life, toward God for the lot in life that he's given to you. That's very rare. That's why the Puritans called it a, a, the rare jewel of Christian contentment, to quote the title of one book. Then verse 17 says, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. The context here is still life together as believers. We belong to Christ. We can be at peace with, with him and with one another. And so all that we say and do should be associated with the name of Christ. By our words and by our deeds, we should glorify him rather than disgrace him. You bear his name in everything you do and the way you're a student, and the way you... Uh, treat your schoolwork, do you do your work with diligence in the way you operate business and the way you treat employers and the way you treat or talk about em employees in, in the way that you uh, do your craft in, in the way that you treat other people, would you say I'm trying to do this in the name of Christ last, last month when our elders met, our session uh, Hal Farnsworth and uh, a new church planter in Athens were with us, and uh, Hal told us just in passing, kind of, I'd ask him a question from the, the men, and he said that just a few weeks, most of you know Hal, he spoke at our missions conference last year, and he is the pastor of Redeemer uh, Presbyterian Church in Athens, Georgia. And he said that he was in a McDonald's the other day, is what he said that night, and and the person working at the counter got all the orders messed up. It kind of became real chaotic. So whatever he ordered, he didn't get. And he said, oh, it's all right. If I, I might have ordered this, but th this fine. I'll take the cheeseburger. And he said there was a, an, an older woman, an African-American woman, standing off to the side watching, and, and she was seeing the interaction. And she then looked at him and said, you're the pastor at Redeemer, aren't you? He said, yeah. She said, my grandson has played football in y'all's football league for like the past three years. He said he loves it. <laughs> Hal said to us, imagine the damage that could have been done had I made some demeaning comment to that cashier and said, well, no wonder you work in McDonald's or something like that, you know, when they messed up the order. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. I want to uh, close by mentioning the second person most of us have never heard of. The first was Ira Sankey. Now I'm going to go back Sankey was in the 1800s. Now let's go back to the 1600s in England, and there was a, there was a pastor in the Church of England named Thomas Ken, K-E-N. 
Now, Thomas Ken, from what I've read about him, was a, was a sought-after preacher. People uh, clamored to hear him, though none of his sermons remain. Uh, we don't have those in print. Uh, he was a faithful uh, pastor to the church. He was a faithful servant of Christ. There was no scandal, no hypocrisy. He died, I think, at the age of 73. Now, even though most of us have never heard of him, we sing a hymn that he wrote more than any other hymn in our church. In fact, we sing it, and he, we sing it in one verse. And it was the last verse of two different hymns that he wrote. He used the same words. And it's what we call the doxology. And it's sung to many different tunes uh, around the world. But we're going to use that in just a moment. But he did, in my mind, he did what Paul was admonishing us to do, to teach and admonish one another and to sing with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs expressing gratitude in our hearts to God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we thank you for the clarity of your word, and we thank you that by having peace with you through Christ, that we can be at peace with ourselves, we can be at peace with others. We pray for any among us today that may not know Christ, that even this very moment you might give them the gift of faith to believe, to understand and see that they have committed crimes against you, as we all have, and that you sent Christ to be a redeemer, uh, to die in the place as a substitute, as a sacrifice for people like us, and that he conquered our enemies of sin and death through his resurrection and ascension to your right hand. And now through our faith in him, we have life with you. You've made us your sons and your daughters. We pray that you'd help us to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, to serve as an umpire between us. We pray that the word of Christ would richly dwell within us and that we would be more resolved today uh, to to do all we can for that to happen in our lives and in our church through reading and, and studying the Bible, hearing the Bible, and teaching the Bible, and, and so forth, and help us to do that with all wisdom. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to stand for the benediction, and then we will sing together those words by Thomas Ken. Receive God's blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.